I'm Yunit Levy of Channel 12 in Tel Aviv. And I'm Jonathan Friedland of The Guardian in London. And we are Unholy, two Jews on the news from Keshet Podcasts. And this week we are three because we will be joined by CNN legend Jake Tapper for this edition of Unholy, Yonit. Indeed, only the best for you, Jonathan. And we are truly looking forward to that conversation, but maybe something interesting to cover before that? Anything in particular comes to mind? Well, it, it remains this battle that I'm going through between my rational brain and my superstitious brain, <laughs> because the rational brain says that there is going to be a new prime minister of Israel imminently, and then superstitious brain says, I won't believe it until I have a photograph in my ha- hand to prove it's real. Okay, so can I talk, talk to the rational brain first? Hmm. Good. Um, What for, I mean, this is a momentous week or a pivotal one or a significant one. Uh, Pick your own adjective. What for many Israelis, depending on your worldview, is either uh, a dream or a nightmare is becoming reality. Because some time between 8 p.m. Israeli time or or 9, uh, Benjamin Netanyahu will be replaced. Uh, And just think of that drama, right? A man who a decade ago wasn't even in politics in this extraordinary chain of events will head up a surprising coalition. He really will be the unexpected prime minister, uh, Naftali Bennett. Um, He needs to go through a confidence vote in the Knesset and then be sworn in as Israel's 13th prime minister. Uh, He will, of course, uh, replace the man who's the longest serving Israeli prime minister, 12 years consecutively, more than Ben-Gurion, more than Margaret Thatcher, more than uh, Tony Blair, Uh, and someone who has become, for better or worse, the pillar of Israeli politics. Now, just think for a minute, Jonathan. I mean, anyone enlisting into the IDF today that's 18 can vaguely remember a different prime minister. I dare say you can probably vaguely remember uh, a different uh, prime minister. So historic days uh, in this country, for sure. And you talked about the picture. Now, what you will see on Sunday, and I want to point you to that moment, again, somewhere between 8 and 9 p.m. Israeli time, will be after Naftali Bennett is sworn in as prime minister when his government passes the uh, confidence vote, and everyone will leave the Knesset. You will suddenly see that Naftali Bennett has the uh, security detail of a prime minister, already beefed up these days, one must add, but the security detail of a prime minister, and suddenly uh, Benjamin Netanyahu with a markedly less security. And I think that will be the moment that even you, uh, the emotional part of you, will realize that that is that has happened. Yeah, no, that is huge. That moment where the sort of power visibly drains away from one person to the next. In the British system, it's always so brutal because the removal men and women, I suppose, literally do come as the election returns are counted. And if there is a change of government, you see the van, sometimes metaphorical, but, you know, in the past, literal, draw up to the front door of 10 Downing Street. And you have that moment in the American system. You have that moment one minute past noon on January the 20th and power shifts from one to the other. And this will be the Israeli equivalent. But I still do need and want uh, to see that photograph of of Bennett in that chair. Mm-hmm. Um, but still, no, I agree. Sunday, our watches are synchronized and set for that moment. I suppose the question people are asking is, in a way, What is Bennett going through right now in terms of preparation? I mean, there is a whole procedure. Again, in the United States, there's a transition. In Britain, there is a whole formal civil service machine that actually briefs in and schools the incoming prime minister. Do we have any sense of whether that is going on? Or would that require uh, Netanyahu to actually concede, in effect, and to Mm -hmm. admit it was happening to allow his officials to talk to Bennett's officials? Yeah, well, that isn't 
uh, really <clears throat> happening. Uh, usually what you should have is a few weeks of preparation, looking forward to that transition. Uh, this isn't what is happening right now. The whole transition moment, which will happen on Monday morning, they both are supposed to go to the ceremony in the prime minister's office, will obviously be a bit of an awkward moment. I kind of have to think back 25 years, actually four days short of 25 years to the day that the young uh, Benjamin Netanyahu uh, stepped into Shimon Peres' shoes in that ceremony, which was quite awkward, in the prime minister's office uh, then in 1996. By the way, Shimon Peres then was 73, only a year older than Benjamin Netanyahu. Today, you asked what uh, Naftali Bennett is going through. I think that's a very good question. And we have to say, never in the history of this country as someone with so few seats, become prime minister. Uh, and that is that is something that, that we should talk about in, in the way that, you know, how prepared is he to actually take on what I think is one of the toughest roles in the world, and that is being the Israeli prime minister. Yeah, I think it's um, the only scenario I can think of that's comparable is mm-hmm. fictional. And it was in the, since you confessed your desire to move to Denmark, it was in the <laughs> Danish TV series Borgen, yep. where you might remember. I think also Bogita, a character named it, Bennett there, by the way. Oh, so there was. That's mm-hmm. right. But Bagita, I think, rose to be prime minister as the leader of a tiny party, yep. but that was just a sort of broker between the other bigger factions. And in a way, Naftali Bennett is the Bagita Nyborg yep. of Israeli politics, who's somehow emerging. So maybe there'll be a TV series. You talked about the Netflix deal the other day. Maybe that's <laughs> going to be his show. But, I want to say he's head of the little him, party that could, yeah. Yeah, sure. the little party that could, and he's somehow going to do that. But it's true about how, in a way, unprepared he is. Mm-hmm. In terms of the formal handover, of course, you know, I wasn't at all surprised when you when you said that, you know, no, that isn't happening. Of course it wouldn't happen because it would require um, either formally or psychologically a concession by Netanyahu. And that is so not happening. And the proof of that came in those statements that uh, Netanyahu has been giving in recent days, in which he says the election has been stolen from him, this is the greatest fraud ever perpetrated on um, uh, the Israeli people. Some of us have spotted a very very familiar, almost uncannily familiar echo in some of this rhetoric. And I think uh, there's a little montage we can play which brings out exactly through the translated voice of uh, Benjamin Netanyahu and another character quite where the outgoing Israeli prime minister's inspiration may have come from. There's the last risk we didn't speak about, and that's the risk of the deep state. Deep state is now deep inside this government. Do you have a deep state? Do you have a group of people? Democrat lawmakers, they're deep state cronies. Is that deep state or what? Explain it. Yeah, so it's CNN who put out this uh, clip and, and did the translation. You almost waited for Netanyahu to say, I won by a lot. I mean, he didn't say that. But when he speaks of fraud, what he <laughs> means is, Naftali Bennett, this is what he says, Naftali Bennett is taking the votes of the right-wing voters to create a left-wing government. This is him delegitimizing uh, the left. It works pretty well and it plays pretty well for his uh, audience. That's why he's uh, complaining and, and saying this is what Naftali Bennett did. You know, the question that goes into my mind is how prepared Naftali Bennett really is for what is about to hit him. And one of the things I think must be uh, on his mind a bit is what does this coalition have to bind it together once Netanyahu is gone? You know, the glue before now was simply Mm -hmm. the shared collective desire from the 
settler right all the way through to the liberal left via the mainstream centre plus our friend the Islamist dentist from the north, the one thing they all had in common was we want to see the back of Netanyahu. Once that has been achieved, then what binds them together? Is there, you know, can you tell me a single thing they all agree on (laughs) apart from the departure of Netanyahu? By the way, not even 100% on the departure of Netanyahu because Mansour Abbas is someone who, if Netanyahu could form a government and would give him a better deal, he'd go with Netanyahu. But let's say that that is the glue keeping everyone together. Um, and, And the fact that they... You know, I asked a very uh, shrewd political operative involved in coalition negotiations. He said, what are the government's plans? He said, how do you expect me to know? Even they don't know. Right. That was his his answer. Look, I'm, I'm tempted to say, Jonathan, this government doesn't have to do anything. It merely has to be sworn in to show Israelis that there is life after Netanyahu and that will be their biggest achievement. That's not entirely true. They have to get a budget passed in the first 100 days. That would, by the way, give you the indication of um, of, of the fact that they can survive if they pass that. Um, but again, look, on, on the one hand, as you said, you have Naftali Bennett, the former settler leader, Gidon Saar, both annexationists, with Horowitz and Michaeli, who are uh, uh, pro-peace and, and want to uh, uh, basically dismantle all the settlements in the West Bank. Obviously, Mansour Abbas on that side, to say nothing of the openly gay head of uh, Meretz party, Nitzan Horowitz, and Mansour Abbas, who would feel more comfortable with the Shas party. I think they might need a vote, a majority vote, just so one of them can go to the toilet. I'm making that joke just, but I mean, really, this is going to be a very interesting coalition to try and govern. They will try to say, we're going back to normalcy. We're trying to work. Every minister will sit with their own portfolio and try to move forward. But there's not going to be a lot that they're going to agree on. No, I was having a conversation actually with somebody uh, involved in one of the parties to this coalition and I asked the same question to them and they said look everyone in this uh, government wants the economy to thrive they want the security of the country to be assured and I said yeah of course everyone wants that that's motherhood and apple pie the question is the how do you get those uh, how Mm -hmm. do you reach those ends Uh, what are the means and on that they obviously I think are going to wildly disagree so you know is it the government of change which delivers no change because they can't and don't want to do anything. Look, these are all going to be the big questions. But first, they have to get over that initial hurdle and uh, and just get the votes in in the Knesset. And we have our sure. watches set for 8 p.m. Israel time on Sunday. Sure. And we have to point out that the ultra-Orthodox uh, will not be part of this government for now, which means that maybe the, uh, anyone part of the reform and conservative movement in the United States could look at this government and say, maybe these are the areas where change can be made, because on that everyone agrees on, including Naftali Bennett, of course maybe things like the quota compromise, etc. That might happen. But again, not too many changes. A friend of mine uh, from the United States asked, why isn't the Palestinian state part of the coalition agreement? I said, well, if it was part of the coalition agreement, there would be no coalition agreement. So, you know, not a lot they can agree on. And I think a lot of Israelis are worried because that's our status quo, right, being worried. Will uh, Israel's enemies, Iran, Hezbollah, for example, Hamas, be tempted to test the new prime minister uh, and see what he what we what he will do. Uh, kind of throwing us back to the Eud Olmert uh, situation in 2006, right? He entered the, the government, he swore in his government in May. July was Hezbollah with the beginning of the war in the, the second Lebanon war. 
So enough of you and me gabbing, Yonit. I think it's time we introduced our very special guest. Indeed, we are honored to be joined from D.C. by Jake Tapper, CNN anchor of The Lead and State of the Union, author of several books. His latest, The Devil May Dance, is fantastic, and we'll talk about it later in our conversation. Hello, Jake. Thank you so much for talking to us. Should we say todaraba? Bavakasha. Thanks so much for having me. Appreciate it. Uh, Jonathan called you CNN a legend. I will add up to that and say you are also, I must admit, my favorite American anchor. Let me be quintessentially Israeli, uh, okay. which is uh, talk about us Israelis, because obviously a uh, big political drama here, Benjamin Netanyahu, yeah. uh, set to be replaced uh, by his former chief of staff, Naftali Bennett, on Sunday. And I kind of imagine an angel of fate tapping on the shoulders of someone from the Biden administration uh, in late January, telling them, listen, guys, Benjamin Netanyahu is going to step down, but you're going to get the former leader of the settler movement instead as prime minister, <laughs> which is a setup to ask you, what kind of welcoming committee, uh, how will the new prime minister be, be perceived in Washington? Well, I think probably uh, he'll be perceived differently than if he were leading a government that was all hardline right-wing settlers. I mean, this is, uh, if this government is actually goes forward, a remarkable and odd coalition, as I don't need to tell you. And I think that Naftali Bennett, whatever people think about him and his views, he is not oblivious to politics, right? He 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 understands now that he might, you know, be like Icarus and get too close to the sun and who knows. But I think there is an opportunity, and I imagine the Biden administration will treat this as an opportunity to start fresh since I don't think it's really been uh, sussed out thoroughly, but I, I don't sense that there's a lot of love lost between President Biden and Prime Minister Netanyahu. I mean, it's never, it doesn't, uh, we, we don't really get too much in terms of details, but it, it doesn't seem to be a warm and fuzzy relationship dating back to uh, when he visited, when Biden visited as vice president right around the time that those new uh, settlements were announced. I think that was in like 2009 or something like that. And then you can go through the whole litany of things that happened, not letting not letting Netanyahu come through the front entrance of the White House. I, I'm sure you guys have a catalog better than I do. There obviously, I think, are some lingering hostilities. So I, I think there's opportunity uh, here. Uh, obviously, I am as skeptical as the next person about whether or not this government is going to be able to agree on anything other than the fact that they hate BB, but we'll see what happens. Yeah, we've been we've been talking about exactly that. I mean, in a way, it's a it's a quirk of the rotation agreement. You slightly instinctively feel that if it was the other way around and Yair Lapid went first, somehow I think that could be a much more immediately uh, harmonious relationship with Washington. Naftali Bennett, it will be a bit scratchier, but still, I think I agree with you. I think anything that is not Netanyahu is, you know, begins with a kind of goodwill halo effect i was interested jake to hear what you what your perspective on beyond just this change in government but the other big event of may which was obviously the 11 day war over gaza and just the sense of of whether or not that has brought a change in how israel is seen in american public opinion on this podcast we talked a little bit about how there seemed to be almost at the level of popular culture a shift you know whether it was john oliver at one end or the hashtag free palestine as if somehow Americans were beginning to look at Israel-Palestine through a, a sort of racial justice, Black Lives Matter lens, certainly on the left. And I just wonder whether that's something that we're picking up from outside the United States or whether you're sensing that from where you sit. I, I definitely agree. I think it has um, 
I don't know that it's changed so much as now it's more open and maybe more accepted to criticize uh, Israel. I will say about the 11-day conflict that I'm glad it only lasted 11 days. Um, I covered in Israel uh, the previous one in 2014, which was just obviously a, a hideous and bloody affair and and uh, and depressing to cover, and I'm sure worse for, for, for you two and obviously for the Israeli and Palestinian people. Yeah, I mean, I think that there is, I think there are a couple things going on. One is support for Israel in the United States used to be a bipartisan thing. But for whatever reason, Obama versus Netanyahu and Netanyahu coming to Congress to uh, speak against the Iran deal, et cetera, really seem to, in some ways, align Netanyahu with Republican politicians. But but um, the American people are, are not 100% paying attention to every nuance when it comes to the Israeli-Palestinian conflict or just Israel in general. And so I think for a lot of progressives, it probably seemed that A, Israel, not just Netanyahu, but Israel was aligned with the Republican Party and specifically with Trump's Republican Party. And B, I think you're right that the social justice movement has, and this is not new. I mean, we all remember my my, my brother uh, wrote a story once for Salon.com, I think like 20 years ago, about how uh, Irish people identified with the Palestinians. Because, you know, back in the 90s, the idea of an oppressor state versus the oppressed makes the oppressed identify with the oppressed elsewhere, the, those who self-identify that way. So I think it's all part of it. And then, yes, with the social justice movement in the United States rising as it has in the last few years, whether it's Black Lives Matter uh, or, or other similar movements, the rise of the progressives with Bernie Sanders and Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, and we should apply these standards to international policy as well. And, you know, there's the, Netan there's the uh, I'm sorry, the Bernie Sanders wing of that, which is criticizing Israel, uh, being willing to, you know, halt weapon sales to Israel, et cetera, but also believing, and remember Sanders worked on a kibbutz when he was younger, believing that Israel has a right to exist. And not only that, that there needs to be in Israel, there needs to be a safe place for Jews. But then beyond that, there is the school of thought of Israel shouldn't exist, uh, not, a, not as a Jewish state. That to me is more... Uh, acceptably outspoken. People are saying that publicly for the first time in a way that I do not remember. And that's 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 pre this 11-day conflict, but but in the last couple of years, I will say, that not being perceived as radical to the degree that the person would be ostracized. So I, I do think there have been shifts. I'm sorry I went on, but no, that, that, it was it was really interesting. And I, I'm I'm sort of adding on to that to that worrying trend, the fact that it's also what we've seen, not only anti-Israel, but also anti-Semitic attacks. And you have uh, Jonathan Greenblatt, I think the CEO of ADL, who said, you know, during the Trump years, he spoke at length and he now was quoted as saying, you know, there aren't the people who are protesting in an anti-Semitic protest in the United States, they don't have MAGA hats, meaning it's not only from the right, we see it from the left. And I wonder how... Uh, how much that concerns you, not only as as Jake Tapper, uh, a newsman, but also as a Jewish father from from D.C. Well, obviously, it concerns me as a I mean, look, any hate crimes concern me. Um, mm -hmm. And um, and I, I, I feel the same in terms of as an anchor about um, and as a person about crimes against black people because they're black women because they're women, Palestinians because they're Palestinian, Muslims because they're Muslim, et cetera, Jew and Jews because they're Jewish. 
Asians because they're Asian. That's been something that's going on here because of the demonizing of, of, of Chinese people as opposed to the Chinese communist government. See, but this isn't particularly new for me personally because when I covered, for example, the 2014 conflict, uh, I was attacked a lot on social media, which is, by the way, being attacked on social media is nothing like being attacked in person. So I'm not even comparing the two. I don't want anyone to think I am. But I was a lot attacked a lot on social media by both uh, pro-Israeli people who thought I was too, you know, a self-hating Jew, anti-Semitic, you know, blah, 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 um, just for questioning Netanyahu's actions. And also I received a lot of hate from uh, pro-Palestinians calling me a Zionist pig, et cetera. And then on top of that, so that's 2014, Flash forward 2015, Trump's running for president. And then I start getting it from, from the MAGA brigade and the and the and and the neo Nazis and the white supremacists. So, to me, and this is I think the, just the quintessentially being a Jew, you know that there's anti Semitism on the left and the right. I mean, th- th- this isn't new to me. I mean, I've known this for a long time. I'm sure you two have known this for a long time. Like, yeah, it's on the left too, and it was more scary uh, when it was on the right during the Trump years when. Literally, the worst act of anti-Semitic hatred happened under Trump, and it was uh, at the Tree of Life Synagogue in Pittsburgh, and it was part of a deranged conspiracy theory that Trump and other people fed this idea that George Soros, uh, which we all know what that's code for, George Soros was, you know, funding a caravan of Latinos uh, to come into this country and replace Americans, you know, whatever, just this crazy white supremacist plot. But now, yeah, now the violence uh, threats are on on the left. So it's, you know, for me, it's just like, I'm Jewish, right? So like, if I ever get killed because I'm Jewish, like, I don't know which side's going to do it. I mean, I'm interested just... I wonder if it's harder for each of you, I mean, being in London or being in Washington. We we talk a lot about the difference between uh, Jonathan being in London uh, and when all of the anti-Semitic protests happening and, and you being in D.C., us being in Tel Aviv, it's a different, I think, Jewish experience. Just uh, the core of it is different. Yeah, although I have to say after 9-11 and then the, there were, you know, and, and, and the threat of um, Islamist terror against uh, Jewish targets, I haven't thought about security wa- while walking into a synagogue. I haven't not thought about it since before 9-11. And now, you know, I don't know where it's going to come from or if it's going to come, but it's something that I always think about. There, I mean, I, when I grew up, there were not, there wasn't a cop or a security guard at the synagogue when I walked in. I mean, there never was. Now there always is, always. And, and just tell but that's since that's since two thousand one. Just, just tell me about the relationship with the th- those feelings and events when they unfold in in the Middle East. I mean, I can say that. You know, British Jews have now got it down. They know to sort of brace themselves uh, when things, er, violence erupts there because they know one way and another it's going to be hard for them, whether it's colleagues at work asking them to explain slash defend what Israel is up to, whether it's social media and so on. Though it's always just a, a, it can be an excruciating period for diaspora Jews. That's the experience, I think, in European communities, in Britain. But is it like that for, do you think American Jews, when they hear that violence is underway in Israel-Palestine, think, right, here we go again? No, not until this conflict. I mean, in my, my, from my perspective and from what I've heard, it's not like, I don't recall it happening in 2014. Now, of course, for a few of those weeks I was in Israel, 
Um, but I don't recall it happening in 2014 that there was an explosion of uh, anti-Semitic attacks. I, I wanted to maybe move a little bit from this topic of anti-Semitism to the uh, fluffy topic of the Trump years and, okay. and ask you, I mean, you have become for so many um, viewers in the U.S. and outside this sort of voice of, of reason and, and decency and integrity. I actually had a friend who once said we should t- take the seal of the president, take the eagle, replace it with Jake Tapper. Um, <laughs> all of, throughout all of those years, is there something that you think that you did that was, that was too far? Oh, um, I mean, <clears throat> I'm sure there are some tweets here and there that, you know, going back, uh, I, I wouldn't have sent them, but generally speaking, I really tried to criticize policies, not people and draw the line, <clears throat> draw the lines where I did, which were, I think it's okay for journalists to take a stand for facts and truth and for decency but I don't think, for me, for the kind of anchor I want to be, I don't think it's appropriate for me to say, and I think this is the right approach for this policy, or I think this is the wrong approach for this legislation. And I think I pretty much adhered to that. I, I, mm-hmm. I can't think of an exception. I, there, and that's not to say that I think that I was perfect. I don't. And I could go through a, a litany of mistakes I made uh, that were that were small or words I used that I wish I hadn't. But generally speaking... I think I pretty much kept to that. I want to ask you something about your other life, because you and I have something in common, which is on the side we moonlight as writers of thrillers. The Devil Made to Hunts, which is your new one, is located in the world of 1960s Hollywood. And so unholy listeners have heard me talk before about my uh, late father. And so I'm wary of going on about him too much, but he was a Hollywood biographer and wrote biographies of several of the characters who appear in your book. And so uh, from Dean Martin through to Frank Sinatra, he interviewed Sammy Davis Jr. They all pop up in your book. And as I was reading it, I was thinking, well, I can see why I'm drawn to that world because I sort of grew up surrounded by all that. But what drew you to locate a thriller yeah. in that universe? Well, first of all, that's so cool that your dad did that. I had no idea. Yeah, um, that's so great. I'm gonna I'm gonna have to check out his books after this. <laughs> um, so it really was very just simple. Um, the first book called The Hellfire Club took place in Eisenhower McCarthy era Washington, 1954, and after it became clear that. Uh, the publisher might let me write a second one, that people were buying the first one. Just around that time, I heard this incredible true story. And as you know, as a, as a student of these, this era, I mean, the 50s and 60s in the United States was just was a wild time where the truth was stranger than fiction. And the true story was that Frank Sinatra, one of the biggest stars in the world at the time, and his pals, the Rat Pack, worked their hearts out to get Senator John F. Kennedy elected president. And he won a very narrow election victory. And after that, Sinatra expected that President Kennedy would stay with him when he came out to California at his Rancho Mirage estate. Rancho Mirage is about a couple hours outside Los Angeles. And he started having all this renovation done to the compound. He had uh, phone lines put in and extra rooms built, a helipad constructed. And then at the same time, Attorney General Robert Kennedy, President Kennedy's brother, who was the chief law enforcement uh, officer of the United States, was investigating organized crime. and it was brought to his attention that his brother was friends with somebody, Sinatra, who had friends who were mobsters, namely Sam Giancana, but some others too. 
And so Robert Kennedy had a choice. Do I offend one of the biggest stars in the world who helped get my brother elected? Or do I let my brother stay and sleep in a bed where mobsters have probably slept? And that's a true story. That's real. So when I heard that story, I'm like, oh my God. First of all, I was amazed that I made it to 2018 with never having heard that story before. Uh, And it's not as though JFK and Sinatra aren't still icons in this country or the world. So once I heard that, I'm like, oh my God, I have to have Charlie and Margaret, the main characters from the first book, go and investigate that and go hang out with the Rat Pack. That (laughs) sounds like a blast. How fun was that to research? Um, I want to ask about Margaret, who's an awesome character. Really, she's just wonderful. And I had to wonder about, um, you know, you both do this, um, men writing about uh, female characters. Is that more difficult to do? I mean, I don't want to generally say that women are smarter, but is it difficult (laughs) to do? I will say this, that I make sure that it passes the test. I don't, I don't assume that I know how to write a woman character any more than I assume I know how to write a black character or an Asian character or anything like that. Like, I, I want to make sure that I get it right. So, you know, my editor is a woman. My wife obviously read it. I definitely try to negotiate it and give a lot of thought to it and make sure that it works. I don't just assume I know what I'm doing. Yeah, I love that part when she's interrogated and someone calls her, you know, Mrs. and she says, doctor, <laughs> which, is, <laughs> which, is a good, which is a good scene. But as, as, uh, as uh, Bobby Kennedy says in the book, uh, nowadays gossip passes for news. So if we can ask you something uh, that's more sure. gossipy than news. I read that you spent uh, some time here in Tel Aviv University when you were a student. Is that true? I did. This was 1988. So, so Ivrit, time. we could actually be doing the whole thing in Hebrew. <laughs> Maybe if it was 1988. Uh, <laughs> I, I, like it, when I was there in 2014, I picked up some uh, again. I've never been able to read your papers. I, I don't understand the idea of, and this is just a American Hebrew school. I don't understand the idea of teaching us all vowels and then taking them away. <laughs> but that's a, that's a whole other thing. Um, <laughs> We, so, we no, think I, people should be up to the challenge. That's what we, we like challenging you. No, it's very Jewish. It's very Jewish to, to make it challenging and, and, and intellectual. Yeah, I was at Tel Aviv University, so it's 1988. So after the first... For how long? Just a semester. And it was great. I loved it. And, you know, it was, the, it was a, a period where uh, in Israeli society where there still wasn't really a ton of security everywhere you went. Like if you walked onto each block at Tel Aviv University was, um, there was a guard and you had to go through, but it was just kind of like a cursory look in your bag. It wasn't, there wasn't a metal detector. So it was a, a little different, but yeah, no, it was, it was a lot of fun. Just one semester, Tel Aviv University. And we did, you know, we went to a kibbutz and we went to a lot and we hiked Masada and we, the, there was a, an election going on. Uh, so There's we, always an election going on. That's true. We <laughs> met uh, we met Yitzchak Shamir. He was he was campaigning, and wow. uh, ran into us. And uh, my friend uh, Dave, whose Hebrew is even worse than mine, <laughs> did not know what to say to Yitzchak Shamir, who I don't think had great English <laughs> himself, and yeah. end up saying uh, "Ani Amerikai, Tov, Tov," which of course, for those who don't know, is "I'm an American." Good, good. <laughs> which is about the stupidest thing you could say to a politician. (laughs) Like a a baby talking, like a two-year-old. Anyway, but yeah, I have fond memories, and I've been there a bunch of times since. Well, we could keep you here for a long time. You and I could have a gap year Hebrew off, where we try and to see who's got the worst junior year abroad Hebrew, um, and with Yonit as judge. I I, I will gladly take the crown. I'm sure my Hebrew is awful. (laughs) 
I will say that Israelis are so kind in how how little they expect from Americans that you guys, I saw your faces light up when I said Bavaka Shah. That's all that's all it's needed. You have such low standards for us. If we just say you're welcome, you're very happy. We are indeed. And we're really thrilled that you talked to us today. It was such a wonderful uh, uh, conversation. Thank you so much for taking the time to talk to us, Jake. It was a real pleasure. Thank you. Well, so that was great. It was good fun to talk to Jake Tapper. He's obviously a great guy. And the only pity of it was we didn't get time to talk about his phenomenal collection of mugs that he has on his desk. And uh, look, we'll obviously just have to send him one of our own, an unholy mug. Yes, a mensch mug. Yeah, well, Mark, before we get to any kind of mensch mug or mensch award, we do have the business of chutzpah. Who's your choice for our chutzpah of the week? Of course, week? of course. Chutzpah uh, trumps a mensch all, every time. Every time. Uh, the story that popped up for me this week, Jonathan, is a decision by a student group in one of Oxford University's colleges. I believe your alma mater, sir? Uh, yes, Oxford mistaken. University, although this is a different college and this makes an enormous difference, you'll need. I'm, I'm embarrassed <laughs> no, for I know. It's, you, just, you it's a world of difference. World I apologize. How could you not? I know? apologize. So, um... So the decision of the different college from the one that Jonathan went to in Oxford University to uh, remove a portrait of Queen Elizabeth II because of her colonial history. This is not about the Queen per se. I know that you're not a fan of the monarchy. I should remind our listeners of episode nine in which you speak of that at length, Jonathan. <laughs> but more on the principle of just removing what doesn't seem right. Now, I don't want to get into the whole con- cancel culture discussion, go all Bill Maher on you, but just ask. You know, the question, how far do you want to go with this and what are you trying to achieve? Now, I can't believe that I'm quoting Pierce Morgan or on the same side of history as Pierce Morgan on this. But this is these. No, we'll forget it. I'm not going to quote Pierce, Pierce Morgan. But, you know, just everyone knows you're woke, guys. We got it. Let's come on. Yeah. Chutzpah Award nominees. I mean, it's, you know, it's a it is a it's become a big fuss. It's front page news and everything. But really, this is a tiny, tiny thing. It's a group just of the graduate students at Magdalen College, for some reason they voted to get the picture of the Queen up seven years ago, eight years ago, now decided they didn't want it there anymore. And it's become this cause celeb. It is just an example of how intense the culture wars that used to be an American thing now are over here. Um, but yeah, it's become international news uh, for Magdalen College. Nevertheless, I think they are edged out for the uh, Chutzpah Award by something which um, unholy listeners will probably want to keep an eye on, which is a by-election, a special election caused by the um, election of a British member of parliament for a new job as uh, mayor of the uh, West Yorkshire region. So her constituency, Batley and Spen, now has to elect a new member of parliament. Normally, this would not be news on unholy, it is fair to say. The reason why it is this time is independent candidate George Galloway um, has decided to seek this seat. And George Galloway is pretty well known because he used to be a member of parliament for the Labour Party. He broke from Labour over the Iraq war. And I think it's fair to say he's one of the two or three people here in this country who is most strident in their opposition to Israel. He is a really trenchant anti-Zionist. Others would use a different word than trenchant. The reason why this matters is he is seeking that seat because it has a very large Muslim, British Muslim uh, community. And it is just possible, given how close that seat is between Labour and Conservative, that if enough Muslim Labour voters defect to George Galloway, Galloway could give the seat to the Conservatives. I I think it's of interest to unholy listeners because I'm not sure that Israel-Palestine has ever been 
an issue in a domestic British election before in a single parliamentary constituency, certainly not in this way. And yet, um, I think it's only going to get more intense. And it obviously was hugely ramped up by uh, the 11 day conflict in May. So I think we may be talking about him again. But there is a little bit of chutzpah just in the idea of this white Scottish guy constantly offering himself to Muslim voters as their champion, rather than, for example, pushing a uh, and backing a Muslim candidate to do it instead. He's a perennial candidate, he keeps doing it. Uh, and this time, it may actually work for him. Yeah, will we agree that he will do a- anything for a headline, even if it's unflattering? Yeah, I think so. He was uh, he dressed up as a in a cat suit on Celebrity Big Brother a few years ago and got on all fours to lick milk from a bowl. Some of us might have thought that was the end of George Galloway's political career, but uh, politics is He's always back. full of surprises, and you <laughs> never, never know. So that's uh, for Hutzpah. What about Mensch? Oh, Mensch. I think we have similar uh, ideas, but uh, my Mensch goes to, let's be honest, that should have happened months ago, um, the announcement by the Biden administration uh, to donate uh, 500 million uh, doses of Pfizer's COVID-19 vaccine to COVAX, uh, which is distributing vaccines to countries that cannot afford uh, enough shots. It's kind of surreal, you and I talking about this as if coronavirus is already in our, you know, uh, rearview mirror. Israel, by the way, completely open. Next week, we're not even going to have masks in closed spaces, uh, in indoors. Uh, but uh, this move is uh, reminding us that it's a long way for many parts, uh, many countries and parts of the world, uh, a long way ahead to get out of the coronavirus crisis. Yeah, it's not completely in the rearview mirror from here in Britain. There's still some fears about the uh, Delta variant, previously known as the India variant. Nevertheless, I'm with you on admiration for Joe Biden. But and normally I would hand hand over the Mensch Award uh, gleefully with you to him. Uh, a late competitor, though, comes in the form of former British Prime Minister Gordon Brown, uh, who I interviewed this week actually for the Guardian, and he is a he says, look, great as far as it goes, but it does not go nearly far enough because 500 million vaccines is not enough when there are billions of people who need to be vaccinated. Uh, and the number of vaccines he said that need to be produced is actually 11 billion. And therefore, rather than people like Joe Biden or British Prime Minister or European Prime Ministers giving their leftovers, what needs to happen is that the G7, there needs to be a big plan to fund, he thinks it will cost 30 billion pounds, uh, to fund the manufacture of enough vaccines to vaccinate everyone in the world twice. It's a huge venture, needs big money, but I think actually he's right to say that. And, you know, though, just as I say, giving, sharing doses, not enough, you've got to make enough. So I think for me, Gordon Brown edges it as this week's Mensch of the Week. I'll give it, I'll hand it to you. Gracious. Mensch-like of you. (laughs) So we are saying our thank yous. Uh, this uh, episode. Um, next week, we uh, might be talking a lot about uh, Benjamin Netanyahu and the long goodbye. I just gave our editor the uh, the title for the next episode. But we will say thank yous for this episode. Executive, executive producer, Lior Friedman, Rom Attic, head of podcasts, Omer Primat, Enya, and Irad Eshel for original music. And remember to, remember to follow us. We are at Two Jews on Instagram. Just letters, no numbers, at Two Jews. Ping us, mention us, and do subscribe if you're not already. Give us those reviews and recommend us to your friends. Have a good week, Jonathan. See you, Yonid. <laughs>